Sometimes you get lucky and your game is an instant hit without investing in growth. For everyone else, there's IronSource. IronSource is a game tech company which builds technologies that helps you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on to ironsource.com, that's ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Twig. Is this 70? I think it's 70. And on the podcast today, we have myself, Joe Kim, Adam Telfer, Eric Chris, and Mr. Boondoggle himself, Mishka Katkov. Welcome oh, back, Mishka. All right, since, since, all right, all right, all right, all right. I want to do this. Since we're talking about boondoggling, this is a perfect segue to the boondoggle of boondoggles, GDC 2020. So, JK, yeah. are you going to GDC 2020? Of course. Of and course. you I'll probably, you as well as everybody probably want to connect with smart people, maybe hear about the latest best practices, maybe, maybe, maybe if you're a startup, maybe even get a ticket, a free ticket to GDC. Well, if that's the case, listen up. So our good friends at Iron Source, yes, those behind the awesome growth platform, the same ones that run that level up podcast and the medium block, those guys, well, they're bringing that same great content to the stage at their developer day. So you should expect a gold mine of insights in six sessions led by game developers and designers sharing their stories of success and failure and Ironsource's own game growth experts covering everything from what makes idle games win to how to hack game creatives and whether we've reached the end of hypercasual. So if you're interested in this, and it's an awesome event, it's a developer day by Ironsource, so it's an awesome thing. For more information and to reserve your free spot and to meet up with JK, go to ironsource.com slash GDC. 2020. So JK will add it here in, in the notes. You can click on it, sign up, you'll hang out, you, you'll boondoggle with JK. You'll have all the great fun and maybe win a ticket to GDC if you don't have one or just give it to your friend. Um, awesome event, Developer Day by Iron Source. Okay, so that was basically an <laughs> Iron That was a commercial, wow. <laughs> <laughs> You can't do voiceovers for commercials. Okay. okay. I, feel, I feel so dirty. I feel so dirty. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. So there's, I feel dirty when I listen to this podcast and, and, and JK does the intro for it. Come on, JK. We know you're oh, full come of energy. On. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's in India. Awesome. He's got, he's got no sleep. Yeah. He's, he's no, no, this is an awesome thing. Developer day, iron source. Come on guys. You'll be there. Okay. Adam, you'll okay. be there. Well, right? I, I'll, I will love for them to tell me about the end of hyper casual when they just started a hyper casual studio. Oh yeah. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On to the articles. And today we will be covering first unity technologies targeting 2020 IPO based on sources. Secondly, my take on Supercell in 2019 as we enter our second decade. This was a blog post by Supercell CEO Ilka, however you pronounce his last name. Is it Pananen or something like that? Pananen. Okay. Third. 
Tim Sweeney at Dice. So there was a YouTube video of that covered Tim Sweeney's talk at Dice, which uh, I think Eric will cover. And then it finally, got Eric triggered. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and then finally, Rovio profits tumble as Hatch continues draining resources. And Mishka, just because Rovio is a public company, you're going to drop off for that one, right? But we will. Yeah, yeah that's going to be that. the last one, and I'm not going to be here. Okay. Be nice. <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm a Rovio fan, so I, I'll good. be nice. Good, uh, good. RovioCon is a great thing, so you want the invite. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I definitely do want that. I'm really so, even though I wasn't invited this last year, but anyway, okay. So moving on to updates. Adam, hit us with some updates. Yeah, yeah. So on top of, of course, the four articles that we're covering this week, uh, there's a bunch of other, I, I would say, smaller news bits that we definitely want to just kind of run down. Um, number one, uh, huge congratulations to Double Loop Games, who just uh, raised $2.5 million from Level Up and, or sorry, from LVP and from 1UP. Co-founders are Emily Greer, so co-founder of Congregate, and Shelby Moldina, who actually worked with me at WB Games and previously was at Dina. Um, yeah, DNA. they're basically built DNA. Jeez, whatever. <laughs> Dina. Then, then spell it DNA. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Anyways, they're making casual mass market games and it's a great team and I wish them the best. HQ Trivia shut down. Um, So I think we covered a lot in kind of previous podcasts what happened there. Um, But supposedly they had an absolutely wild last show where they just kind of got drunk on their live feed. (laughs) Uh, Riot's Project A actually had some details leaked. Um, This is Paul Belazer's project that we, um, Paul Belazer's, who we interviewed for the Riot interview previously. Now, it looks like it's act, uh, going after CSGO and will be less hero-centric than, say, Rainbow Six Siege. Um, but so far, it looks like it's going to be a pretty high-skill PvP shooter, similar to CSGO. All right. Uh, Untitled Goose Game one's Game of the Year from the DICE Awards, so Eric's favorite game of 2019 for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if you actually played it, Eric, but it was actually wait, a really, really fun game. Wait, which game? Sorry. Untitled Goose Game. Oh, for Christ's sake, come on. <laughs> Stealth <laughs> action goose game. Yeah. Did, didn't that win like like best character or something too? Like the goose yeah. one best character. Yeah. Give me a break. What kind of awards <laughs> are these anyway? Uh, I actually really enjoyed the game. But um, and on top of this, Anthem um, looks like they're gonna be ditching their entire live plan in favor of a longer term redesign, which I think is the right decision given they're pretty terrible year one. Uh, and I think they, they have they have to build towards a stronger basis and figure out how to actually scale that game. Um, I, that's I it for know, me. I don't know about this. I don't know why they just don't like move on, right? Start building something else. Why are they focused on re- redoing Anthem? Just it's over, right? All right. One quick update for me is that MZ, formerly Machine Zone, has now worldwide launched. Crystalborn, Heroes of Fate, it's basically a game that's very similar to Raid Shadow Legends, Marvel Strike Force, but it does seem to have an interesting alliance-based map control feature. This is the news that's probably been most discussed on various forums and dark web sources, and a lot of conflicting views on the potential success of the game, but I don't know, at least the self-launch me- metrics don't look too great, but have you guys been playing it? What, what, what are thoughts from you guys? Dude, the beta metrics were horrendous. I mean, it was like, <laughs> I'm surprised this thing is coming in at all. It's like 10 cents per download in Australia. Like Raid at this point was like $7.50, you know, over a similar time period. I, I don't know what the heck they're thinking. And 
you know, they may spend a ton of marketing. I'm not sure that makes any financial sense. Like the game is like super Asian, not really very Western in design. You know, the UI UX is just not very streamlined. I mean, I think they're adding elements to the game, but I just don't understand exactly what the hell they're thinking. You know, I think, you know, Raid is kind of a perfect execution. Hey, how about this? I think the Disney game from Glue is better designed than this game. <laughs> That's how that's how bad it is, right? The metrics are far better for the Disney game than this game, and, and you know what I which, think about which Disney, Disney game? game? Which Disney Blue. Game? Oh, oh, the Sorcerer's just, Arena. Yeah, it's the same game. same style game. Yeah, yeah that's true. But I mean, honestly, Raid. Like, if you really want to know what a game like this should look like, I mean, Raid is probably the perfect execution. All right. Any other updates, or should we jump in? Let's jump right in. So the first article is Unity Technologies is targeting 2020 IPO based upon sources. And according to Cheddar, sources are indicating that Unity is planning an IPO in 2020, likely in the first half of the year. Cheddar also suggested Unity is used by 50% of mobile games and 60% of AR games. And Unity was previously valued at $3 billion in its last funding round, which was June of 2018. Last April, CEO John Riccatello told Cheddar the company was earning $300 million in annual revenue at that time. And Cheddar said that according to its sources, half of that revenue is from advertising. So assuming that's true, shout out to Yushi Lakonen, who I believe is somewhere in Switzerland for helping Unity build out half of its business. So my take on this, overall, I think this should be really good news for mobile game developers. I think it'll be good for Unity to have more capital to deploy to help improve the engine and to put the company in a position so they are not tempted to compete with their customers. I also think Unity seems to be making a lot of really encouraging improvements to the engine itself. I actually had a chance to meet with Arvind Nilakantan, who is head of technology for Unity in India. And we went over a bunch of what's coming up. And if you listen to the last podcast, you will uh, have heard some of the big things that are coming up, but it's all looking like pretty important stuff. And so if you're a PM or exec, be sure to check that out. Uh, what, what do you guys think? You know, John Riccatello is probably the ultimate like pitch guy, right? I mean, the guy has done a tremendous job of repositioning Unity as more of an advertising network uh, as, as well as a technology provider. And you know, I was under the impression they were kind of getting, setting them up for a sale uh, given, particularly given the current lawsuits <laughs> against <laughs> against John Riccatello from former female employees, but uh, from talking to a few folks, it seems that they're like full steam going for an IPO. Um, but sometimes what people do or companies do is they do this as a preemptive move where they get the PR going, they talk to a bunch of investors, and investors get excited, and that leads to a better price for an acquisition from Adobe. Microsoft or another tech company like Google, et cetera, that may be interested in the tech and the advertising network. Um, because at the end of the day, I'm not like quite sure what a kind of public company that Unity will be. Um, you know, they seem to be in a situation that the only way they can really gain traction and grow is if they build, build their business outside of the gaming vertical, right? And the challenge with that as anybody that's ever covered at enterprise software is that it is extremely expensive to build out a sales force to tackle other industries. You know, video games is a pretty relatively small market. 
and that's kind of the DNA of the company. So going outside of that seems somewhat impossible, but you know, like going out there, healthcare, financial services, auto, consumer, you know, it feels a little bit of a stretch for them, but you know, what do I know? You know, um, but, but at the end of the day, the really, the real, the real difficult thing is building a sales force in the Bay area to sell these services, this advertising network and this tool outside of a gaming ecosystem, which is I think going to be a challenge. Now, I haven't seen any research or filing. I haven't done any, I have no info on this company. So just to be clear, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting in the dark here, but I do think the set next stage of growth will be a challenging um, without like an enterprise style partner. And the reason that you get acquired by a Google, Adobe or Microsoft is then you get access to the entire sales force that has relationships with every fortune 500 company in the planet. Right? Um, so, so that seems to be the most logical conclusion of, 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 of this, but IPO will be interesting um, and it's potentially a good company for me to cover. So we will see. I don't know. I, 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 don't, have, I don't have really anything to add to that. I mean, um, I, I, I don't know what the, uh, what the kind of like, you know, what the long-term goal is, like what is unity in 10 years? So, so I, I, we, I know we hypothesized before that Google should be buying unity. So it's interesting to hear uh, Eric's take that it might be a preemptive move for sale. That would be pretty awesome. But um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> uh, so, okay. So back in, uh, yeah, a year ago, we recorded a podcast. It was a twig 23 and we got, we talked about supercell Ilka's post back then on their year of 2018. And it got a lot of people reacting, like a lot of people sharing it. And, and we weren't, I don't think we were critical in any sense. We're really positive, but, but some people took it that way. So, oh, I think I was critical, honestly. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think some people took it that I was critical. So uh, people get confused. Like I know shooters and I'm critical about Supercell when it's you guys. So, so <laughs> for sure I wasn't, but anyways, uh, let's look at the, uh, the 20, uh, 2020 post from Ilka. And first thing that you have to say, this is a fantastic openness from a CEO and something that I personally like other CEOs to do, uh, because it's, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to read and it's so personal. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a PR release. But anyway, my key takes are four. So I want to talk about their mission statement. I want to talk about Supercell's uh, organization growth. I want to talk about key games. And finally, I want to touch upon the, uh, the investments and finances. So I think the first thing that, that anybody took out of it was, was kind of Supercell's mission statement, which is games that are played for years and remembered forever. And Ilka kind of goes in and quotes in his own way. This is a quotation is like, our idea was simple to create a new kind of games company that would be the best place for the best people and teams to create the best games, games for as many people as possible that will be played for years and remembered forever. And I think it's, um, I think it's just a fantastic mission statement. And it's not only that, but it's the fact that the company does good. And when you read through it, it's, it's you know, the things that they're not avoiding tax, taxes. They're investing back into community with things like Hive and, and they're investing into the world overall with, with the whole carbon neutral uh, approach and, you know, the wildfire relief campaigns and so forth. So it's really nice to read about a company that not only makes a lot of money, but, but you know, actually, acts well as a part of the community. So let's go to some of the, uh, the other things that I kind of try and read. So 
Ilka was talking a lot about, not a lot, but he was talking about the growth pains. He was talking about that in his previous post when he kind of mentioned that, that, you know, they're trying to stay small, yet he was talking about opening up a studio in Shanghai, uh, you know, more teams and, so, and growing the team sizes. So in this post, he kind of addressed it uh, talking about these growth, pace, uh, growth pains and talking about the headcount reaching whooping 300, which is, of course, uh, really small for a company that makes billions. But the way... Um, they, the way I think everybody sees it is that the growth is inevitable. Uh, the games that Supercell makes are played for years, and that naturally ties up developers. And with the, you know, the modern games, the demand for content is ever greater. So that means more people and bigger teams. And when you have more games that are live and you have more and more people on them, well, that increases the size of the company. And the kind of key question, I think that's why he was talking about the growth pace is, is will it change Supercell? And, and personally, my opinion is no, because, because of this incredibly strong mission statement. And I think that will preserve the culture because people who join Supercell want to work with the best people on the best games and on the games that are played forever. And, um, and, and I think that that kind of a mission statement really is, is the, uh, the key to preserving the culture. So, Let's go to their portfolio. Um, during last year, um, their revenues stayed pretty much the same. Uh, and if you break down to five of the games, uh, Boom Beach, Brawl Stars, Clash of Clans, Clash Royale, and Heyday, you can kind of see that two of the games grew significantly. Well, of course, Brawl Stars, because it really launched in 2019, and Clash of Clans was also up by about 30%. All the other games were down. In the blog post, Ilka mainly concentrated on Brawl Stars, naturally because it's the new game. He talked about the community sports approach, the esports, the YouTube, how big they're in Korea. And, you know, the fact is the game made $422 million in the first year, uh, according to, uh, I think it was Pocket Gamer. And another thing that was very interesting with this game is, according to the Appani um, State of the Mobile um, report, you can clearly see that this game connected really well with Gen Z. And when you look at Supercell's portfolio and the, the, this game launching, it didn't have significant cannibalizing effect on other games. Unlike when Clash Royale launched, it had an effect on, on Boom Beach and Clash of Clans. But there's also other facts. And that is that the uh, revenue per download for Brawl Stars is lowest uh, com com compared to all the other games. So at the moment, it's about 4.8 after 4.8 dollars after 12 months of being live in the US to comparison Boom Beach is 6.6 .6, Clash Royale is 10.2 and Clash of Clans is 4.3 all after tw first 12 months so it's it's um you know it's it's less than it's pretty much the fourth of what it was with Clash of Clans and, and even significantly lower than than with Boom Beach and this low monetization is is kind of what you can see um, when, you, when you analyze the declining growth curve of this game. Uh, pretty much after launch, the revenue have been declining. Uh, there might be more and more audience. The game might be bigger and bigger, but you don't see this in monetization. Is it due to the, uh, the Gen Zs playing this game? Uh, I don't know. And I can also see that the, uh, the latest traffic that is coming to the game is coming more and more from tier three countries. Like we see Russia being pretty big for the game. Ukraine, Brazil is pretty big now. So it's, it's interesting to see how well this game prevails. Ilk also talked in his blog post about Clash of Clans, which definitely deserves all the praises. This game is like eight years old and it was up by, by about 30% in revenue and, and bringing overall like 40% of, over 40% of, of all the, uh, the, 
the company's revenues. He mentioned Heyday and Boom Beach that they had giant updates, but when you look at the uh, the revenue numbers, both both of the games kept declining. So despite these big, big, big sort of a bold beats, how Zynga would call them, uh, the games were down. And Clash Royale was not mentioned, and and you know this game was down by about fifteen percent year to year, and um, and overall this is smaller decline to compared to 2018 where it dropped by a third. So since we're talking, you know, money, it kind of makes sense to talk about the finances a little bit. And since Supercell is a, is a Finnish company, they do have to state their finances. So their Euro revenue for 2019 was 1.4 billion euros, which is an insane amount of money for, for a company with 300 people. I mean, this is, this is outrageous. And, it's largely the same as the revenues in 2018, which is kind of surprising because in 2019, they launched Brawl Stars and that game was massive and the revenue still stayed the same, actually declined by a couple of millions. Um, and then their EBITDA was, was over half a billion euros, which is, you know, staggering. But also that was down by about 4%. And this is usually normal because when you're launching game that big, you're probably spending a lot of money in, in marketing. So... So that's that. But when you look at the, uh, the, the finances overall, it's, I think it's fourth year in a row where, where they're declining. It's a small decline compared to last year. But if you compare these numbers to 2017, uh, the decline of revenue compared to 2017 would be 22% and EBITDA would be down by 26%. So the good news is the decline of, of both revenue and EBITDA has slowed down significantly. It's almost stable. Uh, but the bad news kind of is that the decline continued despite of a launch of a mega hit like Brawl Stars. So I'm not going to actually go further to the investments. I'm just going to summarize it that, that I think this, this level of openness is really, truly fantastic. And this is something that I'd love to, to read from, from other CEOs. And I hope Ilka does some kind of like a hashtag CEO challenge where, where the other, others would write about it. I think from company communication perspective, this is the best kind of proactive communication. Because if we would only have these financials, we would be talking about a different story. But now that Ilka is so open and so straightforward, it you know he's kind of telling his own story versus allowing people to tell a different story looking at the numbers. And it's also fantastic to see that a company is truly guided by its mission statement and it's doing well. And I think it's, it's, it's just great to read that things. So because of those things, I think no matter if Supercell is declining for the next hundred years forward, I think everybody will be still rooting for that company. And, you know, I am just for the, uh, for the report. I am. And maybe Eric has a different opinion. So before JK goes on ramble, how awesome this is, Eric, you talk. Oh, no, no. I'm going to let JK go first. <laughs> okay. Because... All right. <laughs> well, for me, I, I got to say, thank God we have a company like Supercell around because just, you know, the world we live in and sometimes our industry mm. is depressing so mm -hmm. it really is great to see a company like supercell run by good people doing the right thing and even when revenue and profits are slowing down they're gonna stick to their core principles and just to be, be clear yeah revenue and you know EBITDA is down but they're still making a shit ton of money especially yes. for the number of employees as, as you mentioned so it's good to see good guys winning in an industry where there are some like movie villains in our industry, just, 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 <laughs> just, just, just to keep it real. So I do think a lot of other companies would have panicked and tried to juice revenue somehow, but it's good. They're playing the long game. They're managing growth. They're, they're being careful, doing all the right things. And I, it's rare in any industry. So, and it's good to see that in this industry. 
from a portfolio perspective, one of the interesting things that, that you talked about, though, Mishka, that I thought, I thought was interesting, we kind of talked about it before, was the impact of mm -hmm. Battle Pass, right? And I think it's, it's Battle Pass plus trade tokens. We talked about the tale of two cities, right? So yeah. there are two biggest games, Clash of Clans, Clash Royale. The impact of Battle Pass on one is up, the other down. I believe our good friend Giovanni Ducati is going to be studying that issue. So maybe we could even do a podcast or something with him once he yeah, yeah. Big that. But that was also very interesting. And I do think back from Twig 23, when we did get some flack, I, I, if I remember correctly, I, I do think Supercell did get upset at me for talking about some of the rumors about the company. But anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to Eric. <laughs> Well, I'm going to have to agree. I think, I think it is kind of amazing to have kind of a pure mobile creative company that makes great games and kind of sticks to their guns about how they build games. And so far, it seems anyway, the overlords at Tencent are kind of leaving them alone. But being, you know, that little douchebag finance guy that I am and a shareholder of Tencent, <laughs> it's still a bit disconcerting about their performance over the last few years. I want to, I'm going to hope that they stay independent and they can manage their company like they were a startup, which they continue to do. The fact that they only still have 300 people is insane. Okay. Because a game, company like that should have been growing pretty tremendously, whether it's through acquisition or, or uh, growing teams in order to support more games to continue to grow. So they are, they're almost intentionally staying small is what it seems like anyway. Um, but what I worry about and what's, ultimately going to happen eventually, I have to imagine, is that Tencent is going to come in and start treating them the way Activision has been treating Blizzard, you know, and potentially destroy their creative integrity, which would be terrible, right? So, <laughs> so I don't know, but, but, but because they're owned by a publicly traded company, they, grow, they reward growth of revenue and earnings. Um, and, and although creative integrity is an amazing thing, uh, they... Uh, they will be managed as such eventually, I, I would think anyway, but I don't know. Um, so it's really good that they're stabilizing revenue in EBIT right now. That, that's actually a good thing because they were declining in 19, I believe. Um, so hopefully they can grow, get some growth initiatives going, get some new games, maybe do some acquisitions so that they can continue to build or they could do the kumbaya thing that uh, Mishka kind of thinks and just stay, stay, true to themselves right um <laughs> now i don't, I, don't I love know. the tone of that suggestion yeah <laughs> I, I i just think it's unrealistic to assume <laughs> that they can maintain their 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 independence in this way but I, I i could be wrong i mean so far it seems like they've been left alone yeah. but but has, role, has yeah has tencent a previous history of of kind of coming in like acting like activision well you see what's going on with riot right that's not that's not I, I, I don't want to comment on this, but like, you know, the way Riot <laughs> is going after like every single game under the sun right now. You that know, Blizzard I, made. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there, there's a coincidence there, you know, that uh, the one product company is not something that Tencent's all that interested in, in, in seeing, despite how successful they are, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're getting some pressure there. They certainly got a lot of pressure. Anyway, whatever. We're, we already talked about this. So they got pressure yeah, yeah. to bring their game to mobile, which they did not do. And then what then Tencent did it themselves, you know? So there is some pressure there, but again, I don't know that many people at Tencent um, and I don't know that many people at Supercell. So I, my question is to you guys, do you think they have the infrastructure and people to scale, like to 
execute against, you know, growth with M&A or, you know, do they have an operating infrastructure of live ops and UA and customer support and stuff that could scale to, you know, many, many more products and many, many more teams. It seems I, unlikely at this stage with 300 I, people, but I don't know. They, they have been, they have been hiring heavily here in, in Helsinki and, and they've also something that what they didn't do that much before is outsourcing. And currently they're outsourcing quite heavily. So they're definitely that, you know, According to rumors, they're, they're definitely uh, investing a lot into live operations, and you can see it with the uh, with the content cadence of these games. But when you compare it to uh, you know Tencent level, um, you know let's say even Call of Duty type of cadence, they're still not quite there. So if we look at Heyday or Boom Beach, you know those games are not the primary games, but they only have like one big update a year compared to like Zynga's quarterly bold beats. So there's yeah. room I to mean, improve, but they've taken steps. I mean, there's more to life than growing revenue and earnings, right? I understand yeah, that, you know, exactly. But I'm the finance douche and the finance. So I have to, I have to stay true to myself. Right. But yeah. when I, when I look at these revenue per download numbers that you're showing, it's basically saying exactly what I've been saying all along is that every subsequent game they released monetizes worse than the last, right? Except boom beach. That was lower than uh, clash Royale. Sorry, it was no, Boom uh, Beach my, came out before Clash Royale, dude. Yeah, yeah, but but the revenue per download is lower compared to Clash Royale. Okay, okay, but my point is is that yeah. you can't possibly hope to grow if every game you come out with is monetizing worse, right? Yes, <laughs> that's like, but you know, <laughs> it, I, I, you know, they make great games. Like, there's no doubt. And Brawl Stars, honestly, I had no idea that Brawl Stars would have taken it. It was a beta forever. I didn't think it would take off the way it does has. It's doing extremely well, but $5 a user, $5 a download, you can't really spend against that too aggressively, I would think, but um, I'll leave that to the UA people. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Um, yeah. I just wanted to talk a little bit about like super sells DNA in their culture. I think um, going back to your blog post, uh, JK, like you talked a lot about companies that can actually build new games and how that DNA is so structurally different and companies that can can sustain these games in live, right? And Supercell, arguably, well, really, like I, I would love to argue with anybody who, who thinks differently. Supercell is the best company at building new games. Uh, I don't think anyone can beat them at this. Their culture is so good at incubating new game ideas. ideas. So, and I think like right now, Supercell is getting obviously stretched by their live ops. Like live games are a black hole for resources. And I'd argue even still like games like Brawl Stars could use a lot bigger team, just as you said, Mishka, on like creating those bold beats on a quarterly basis, right? Like they need a bigger team to create the interesting live cadence they need to retain players better. Um, best example of this is like Apex Legends and like how important that live content was for that game. So I don't think Supercell can, can scale without breaking their culture. Um, I think it's really, really tough for them to, to break out of this, like even from getting above 300. But I don't actually know what I would do here because I think scale would break the culture, but you kind of need the scale to actually sustain these games. Uh, and I don't think it's a dire situation at all. They're clearly doing a lot with, with very few people, but I would push that they need to just continue offloading as much of their live to as many of their sister studios and outsourcing as possible. Um, the best example I have is like take Space Ape who they acquired and is filled with very talented live developers they're even making a game that's pretty much the same thing as Brawl Stars, at least they were. 
prison soft launch for a while, mm -hmm. give them the content treadmills that you can't scale to operate, right? Um, and, and work with them to get the content and life plan you need to succeed. Uh, just so you can actually double down on what you actually do best, which I would argue is new games. Adam, um, to be honest, like I, I, I may have said this exact same thing on a, on a, on a breakfast to a certain person who, who knows about these things. And he, he, uh, he said that, you know, we're good at live ops. We've gotten a lot better. And, oh, I'm not, um, like they, are, they are great at live ops too, right? Like yeah. they've, they've run heyday. They've run Clash of Clans. But as JK has in this, in this blog post, which I think really, really outlines it, the mm -hmm. DNA is so different. They are so good at new games. Yeah. Focus on that, right? Le and th th live is just going to keep sucking up resources. And yeah. if you don't want to break your culture, then find ways to off, like offload that live load. I want to mention one thing that wasn't mentioned in the blog post, and that's the supercell ID. Have you guys noticed the the thing where you log yeah. in to the game? Um, I think that can be pretty powerful. Like, think about the the portfolio that they're building with all the investments with the to the companies that kind of share the same DNA and are making really cool new games. Uh, they've invested into Bunch, which is all about like playing together. I mean, you guys did a podcast with them. Uh, so I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of these kind of like uh, long shot elements that are coming to play a little bit uh, in, in, in some amount of time that they don't talk about that can accelerate their growth. And especially, you know, allowing players to play more together and, and really, you know, kind of creating this sort of a supercell platform. Yeah, but the, the, the fundamental problem here that I see from all this discussion is that they just don't have the people to scale, nor do they even have the infrastructure, management infrastructure to build out these type of uh, ideas. You know, like Epic is hiring like gajillion people over there trying to build, build stuff, right? That just doesn't seem within their DNA. And I think I'm, I think I'm agreeing with Adam is that their core competency is building new games and yeah. maybe that's what they should do and outsource the rest to other developers. But even that is hard to execute because finding the right people and the right partners to do that. Yeah. So I hear what you're saying. I, I think there's certain inherent value in what they have in terms of the audience is super loyal, but yeah. do they really have the infrastructure to support any type of initiatives besides making new games and managing existing games, you know? So, yeah, and I think it's really it, just is, about yeah. focus, right? Like, yeah. like focus on, on building new games and really take that, that same approach that they've always had, which is like slow growth, right? Like bring somebody like space it under their wing for a little while Take the time you need to, to, to really be able to trust that studio with the live capabilities and then over time grow, grow that way, right? Like it grow methodically, yeah. but, but slowly. Yeah, because be before Supercell, uh, Space Ape was known as the lean live operator. Like that was their, that was their shtick. I mean, that was, I, I went to a GDC talk by a person from, from Space Ape and he did an amazing talk about live ops. I've watched YouTube videos with the Space Ape guys talking about how they live, how they run, you know, live ops. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird that they currently don't have those games in live ops, which is their sort of a core competence, but yeah. Yeah. And, and not to knock them, but like how, when was the last like live game that they managed to, to get up, right? Space Rival, Ace? Rival, Rival yeah. Kingdoms. Yeah. They really struggled. I really like those guys too. We yeah. met them when yeah. I was at Kabam, but man, they just did not execute against <laughs> their vision. I think they execute against their vision, but I, I don't know. The products were just not, not, didn't work. Um, um, anyway, they were, they were a great team. I really like, I hung out with them at Gamescon back way back mm. when. Anyway, changing the subject to Mr. Tim Sweeney at Dice. Uh oh. Speaking of Epic, <laughs> well, Tim got up there and did his keynote at Dice, and I think he just put his foot in it fundamentally. 
And I spent way too much time yesterday racking my brain on how to really summarize his speech. And after talking to my wife last night, what I realized that is that I'm just not smart enough to articulate all the issues that Tim tried to bring up in his 30-minute dice speech. And I also realized that Tim is not smart enough either. <laughs> okay, so fundamentally, I think what happened is that he had an idea of what he wanted to talk about and he didn't really prepare ahead of time because he had some ideas in his head and he started off strong, but then it just completely went off the rails to some degree and caused all kinds of controversy. And fundamentally, I just think Tim got over his head in this presentation. You know, he, I think if he had kept to his vision of the future and, and, and he would have played it safe, but he brought in politics, he brought in the closed platforms, he brought in other monetization practices, and just opened him up to a lot of criticism, criticism because ultimately he's contradicting himself constantly. And in some cases, he's just totally hypocritical about the whole, about what he's talking about, right? And so to my first point, look, I don't have, I, I just don't have the time nor the energy to, because this is a free podcast to actually go into depth to each of these issues. But I just want to point out from my perspective, like, like why I think he kind of just blew it um, and, and, he showed kind of an overall arrogance that that uh, was not befitting of of a of a, you know, a keynote at Dice, you know. So the good news is that his overall vision is very similar to my own, frankly, in terms of where we're going with this market. Like he believes that we are in the process of creating an open platform, or or for lack of a better word, a metaverse that is a destination for social experiences and play. Right? I think he's totally right about that. Right. And he thinks that like the social experiences, things like Discord and TikTok and other social networks are, are a good indicator of where we're going. User-generated content from Minecraft and Roblox, he, he mentioned. Um, and ultimately to create, you know, a platform for worldwide discourse on issues, you know, with streamers and other social network personalities. So kind of, I don't know, he had, you know, the, he had like a set of guiding principles um, you know, around how you treat your customers and how, you know, you open up the platform, et cetera. Like all this stuff made total sense. And Fortnite, in a lot of ways, led the way in all of these type of activities where whether it's cross-platform, whether it's social, there's not much user-generated stuff, but that's something they're trying to work on, et cetera. So I think if he had left it at that, we would we, we were okay, right? But then he started going off on the bad things about the industry. And I, I honestly just don't think he did himself any favors here because I just think he brought up a lot of stuff without really kind of understanding what he was talking about half the time. So the first thing he started to talk about is the closed ecosystem. So basically condemning Facebook, Google, Microsoft, in which um, you create an, a customer adversarial business relationship that does customers harm, I think was this kind of way he's expressing it. So fundamentally, he says, by using Facebook and Google, you're paying for the service by giving up your privacy, right? And that these platforms should open up and, and, and stop collecting information about you, I suppose. is kind of his big argument there. Um, you know, I think this is becoming more and more of a popular talking point around tech and how Facebook, Apple, and Google are using their market position by forcing the 30%, et cetera. And I, and I don't think he has a bad case here per se, but I, I'm really not going to agree or disagree here, but obviously this is a huge controversial subject that requires like hours and hours of discussion and just throwing it out there in a keynote at Dice is just a little, I don't know, not 
not not very smart nor is it is it is it really appropriate in my view anyway um you know for me like maybe 30 percent is too much maybe not i don't know you know game gaming was fundamentally built around microsoft sony and nintendo you know the industry would not be nearly as big as it is without them right if we had just maintained an open platform like the pc like we would just not be this industry would not be the size that it is you know um these guys built systems that were plug and play. It didn't require updating drivers and messing with configurations. You know, start, consoles really started the meteoric rise in gaming. And you can make the exact same argument for Google and Apple, right? You know how many different configurations and screen sizes that existed before feature, before, you know, during the days of the feature phones? You were building like 500 different builds of games in order to get it to market. It was insane, right? And it was, it was unprofitable because it was more of like a project management than it is a building games, you know? And so all these platforms have done ex things that have been very, very positive for the overall gaming ecosystem. And just to basically, you know, condemn them for, you know, doing their, their business, it just seems a little bit, you know, off, frankly. Uh, the second thing, and the one thing that just drives me insane, is getting on his high horse about um, <clears throat> loot boxes and pay-to-win systems. Right? That he he basically says that these are adversarial for the customer. Um, now, he basically compared loot boxes to going to Las Vegas, and and <laughs> and what he said was that you should basically separate these games into a different genre and and put them on their own so that they can. In, in in theory be like i don't know uh i don't know what, what what's the right word just be separated so that people don't like see them or they're they're off on their own and that they they don't belong in the normal normal game so anyway i'm not a big fan of loot boxes either to be honest right i really don't think they are a great monetization design but they are a monetization design so but this is where I think he is completely hypocritical because when you start talking about loot boxes and you start condemning that kind of monetization design, how soon will it be before people start condemning or litigating against other uh, monetization design, right? Because fundamentally, these free-to-play monetization design are all built around the same idea, right? They're built around influencing how players behave within the game and spend. You basically are creating addictive compulsion loops that provide consumers the ability to spend rather than play, or you make them play in order to spend, right? And so it doesn't end with just loot boxes if people start litigating against these monetization designs. These games are built to be addictive. You don't think that having these uh, season passes is not addictive for the kids that you're, that you're providing it for, right? I mean, like, you're basically creating these compulsion addictive loops in order for people to keep playing to progress. And you're getting that dopamine rush as you unlock new items in the, in the tree. So maybe loot boxes are a little bit skeevier than, than season pass, but it, I don't think it's that far of a stretch, honestly. And it's like, he's basically throwing rocks in the glass house at this point. And I don't think that's super fair. And as a side note, both Roblox and Minecraft are games that he talks about a lot. And a lot of those have elements of pay to win and loot boxes for that matter. So, I don't even know if he knows exactly what other people are doing on this on this front, right? So, and and the other the last thing is basically he he basically claims that gaming should not be political, right? Um, that uh, as a platform, you know, companies should be neutral in in the politics frame. But 
I think the biggest hypocritical thing that he did was he was basically using this platform of success that he's had at Epic to create and make political statements about the industry as a whole, right? So he's basically doing exactly what he said that they shouldn't do, you know? So in my view, I think he felt, he certainly did not go through PR or anybody in terms of getting this presentation done. And, and it feels like he was really unprepared to talk about these subjects and certainly not in 30 minutes, right? This is just, I think it was a little bit off. My quick take on this is that I actually think Tim did make, you know, some good points. I don't agree with all of them, but, you know, I actually don't mind him talking about some of the things that he talked about. But the thing that he kept bringing over again and again is companies that have a customer adversarial relationship, something he created like four or five times in his talk. And my point here is that there is a company called Blue Hole and PUBG Corporation who would have a pretty good claim on this notion of having a customer adversarial relationship with Epic. So if Tim actually took a look in the mirror, he is being hypocritical. So that's, that's my only point on that. Adam? Yeah, um, uh, this is Tim Sweeney, right? Like we, we've known this through, you know, especially in his battles against Google um, with the, the opening of the Epic store, like what his beliefs are. He is an altruistic tech CEO and he believes strongly in open tech, you know, especially things like open payments which I found pretty interesting. Like I, <laughs> I would love the ability to buy something on you know, PS4 and get a free copy on Xbox, Switch, and PC, um, but I don't think that's ever gonna happen. Um, but yeah, I, I think specifically on consumer adversarial models, which I think like, is much more aimed directly towards like us, um, I think that's really where he felt pretty naive and hypocritical. And I definitely agree with Eric as well as with you, JK. Like, um, Free-to-play games, fundamentally are about selling digital assets. As soon as we moved away from selling products and free engagement, we are now selling digital asset, assets where we as a designer have direct impact on the value of that digital asset, right? Like if, if we want to talk about adversarial, like sure, Fortnite has levers. You could drop your battle pass down from 100 plus hours to 10. You could drop your skins down from nearly $20 a skin to a buck each, right? Like you have the levers to be less adversarial, but that that's part of the business model Like you have tools with time skill and luck to manufacture this value loot boxes are one battle passes are another timer skips are another that are all setting the value of that digital asset so the digital asset is only valuable if it's hard to earn so in theory you have a customer adversarial relationship regardless with free to play um so i just think this is the reality that we live in it's about striking this balance with you know players in mind um, but thinking that we can sell positive in-app purchases is just naive. Yeah, I, that, that part drove me insane, right? I mean, it just, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I, I watch my child do this every, every, every season, you know, with, with Fortnite. This is not, it's not necessarily, he's not reinforcing healthy behavior, right, uh, on the youth. And, and, and the fact that his game, a lot of the games he's talking about are more, more geared towards adults, which actually have a little bit more sense to this stuff. But he's actually catering his... He's actually more guilty because he's catering his kid, his game to kids who don't have as much maturity to be able to know when they're kind of getting bamboozled, right? And so, I don't know. I think you know. I think Tim is I think coming from a good place, right? And I think he's really, really smart guy. I just don't think he should be out there <laughs> throwing these things out in a thirty-minute presentation at Dice. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe um they need to be talked about and you know, put out there. But I, I tell you though, they start going after loot boxes in a significant way, 
um, it's only a matter of time before they come after all kinds of monetization design, um, in my opinion, anyway, because it's just a slippery slope, you know. All right, Rovio, moving yeah, on. Let's move on. All right, I'm gonna Last move article. on to. I'm gonna move. Come on, on. man. Jk, Jk. Um, Rovio Con 2020. Think about that when you're uh, when you're running this. <laughs> We're just gonna tear apart Rovio from now yeah, on. No. no. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, before we got we got awesome events coming up. Uh, would love to have you there. So be nice. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> we have to keep it real on this podcast. Yeah. Okay. So Rovio um, just had their financial call and overall it was not great. Um, the company said it wouldn't reach its profit target for the year. Adjusted, adjusted their operating profit margin from uh, to five to eight in 2019 compared to the previous forecast, which was nine to 11%. So overall, their stock is down initially by about 25%. It looks like it's, you know, last time I checked was about 4.1 euros, um, down from 4.9, so about 15% of value on the news of their earnings. Um, sad because actually Rovio has now wiped out, I think, a lot of its share price gains from 2019. Um, so why did this happen? Um, their operating profit went down from 7.2% to 0.3% for Q4 20, uh, 2019 compared to Q4 2018. This happened despite actually their uh, growing their revenue 2.8% um, year over year for the full financial year. And despite them actually having a pretty successful launch of their Angry Birds Dream Blast game. So what actually happened? Well, first off, some smaller things. One thing, licensing dropped. Profit margin reduced to 0.3% from 2.3. Um, Angry Birds 2 revenue overall declined. So it was about 35 million in the quarter four 2018 to 25 million in quarter four 2019. And yet that was mainly due to like lower UA, focusing on spending profitably. Um, and that really means that about now Angry Birds Dream Blast is 30% of the business. Also, a lot of the older games, a lot of the older Angry Birds stuff declined faster than predicted. That was like match friends, pop and catalog games. But kind of putting all those smaller issues aside, key issues that hatch a side initiative from Rovio, concocted back in 2016 by an ex-exec has been draining their profit margin since it's essentially burning cash. Um, hatch operating profit um, was kind of put together in this other category. Looks like negative 17.6 million, um, up from negative 14.5 for a similar quarter in the previous year, just due to go-to-market expenses. Um, just so some context of what Hatch is, it's a mobile network, 5G-focused premium game streaming system. What the so fuck are they thinking? Like, how is this? E how did this even get greenlit? Are they out of their minds? <laughs> like this is, a, this is like every single thing I hate about gaming in one little one little sentence. Are you joking me? A 5G focused premium game streaming where there's no market for premium, there's no market for subscription, and 5G is just a freaking wish, right? What is going? What? How did this get approved? Is Mishka still on? I gotta understand how something like this gets approved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm being invited to RovioCon. <laughs> um, yeah. But we can't, we can't be nice about this. This makes absolutely no sense. It doesn't, I mean, I, I, oh God. So anyway, it's kind of like a Google Stadia and xCloud for premium games because the, the only reason I'm not playing premium mobile games is that I don't want to download them, right? But... <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my God. Eric is like falling off his chair. Here. I just, it's come on. I think the service is being transitioned to like a kid's service or something like that, though, right? But still, that doesn't solve anything. No, that's even worse. I mean, we already talked about this. Like, those, those margins are even more razor thin because you can't get premium game. Right? Whatever, dude. Come on. Let's guy. Why would they invest in this where they have all this IP and these great you know, potential and they want to build some bullshit? stadia for mobile i mean give me a break anyway. anyways rovio announced last year around this time frame that they actually wanted to get completely out of the business but uh have been unable to offload the company uh, yeah you think year. who the hell would want that <laughs> I mean, so on. major restructure imminent for that specific um uh, <laughs> initiative to reduce the cost i think it's still but it still looked like they're going to be investing what was it, it was down six million something around six million range uh still um, but yeah, so Rovio overall is hanging their hat on the growth of Angry Birds Dream Blast and their new titles coming up, saying that that's really the story that they want to tell. But the reality is, is that Rovio and the Angry Birds brand has been in decline for a while now, solidified by, I think, the movie sequels, uh, lackluster performance. Um, the new games as well, like if you look through their deck, are all actually not using Angry Birds as a brand. Um, and I think uh, that's that really kind of is telling about that brand. Um, what advantage Rovio had in the past with that branding is now gone, especially since their UA spend has actually been increasing over time. Now they've got about 41% of spend on UA versus Zynga is 39%. Uh, and both those companies are pretty aggressively growing. So if they're hanging their hat on the new games, how are they actually doing? The new game, Sugar Blast, Small Town Murders, World Quest, and Phoenix Rangers, we've covered a little bit in the past. Sugar Blast looks a bit interesting because on an RPI basis, I think they were hitting something like $4.5 RPI versus the 1.6 that Dream Blast had after about four months in the US, which looks actually amazing. Um, but when you actually look at the downloads, they're not really getting a lot. And it looks like they basically did a big splurge of marketing in the beginning and then have just let it drop. So those numbers are pretty inflated. So it looks like they can't really scale Sugar Blast. Um, the other two games, Small Town Murders and Phoenix Rangers, uh, both don't look great. So Small Town Murders, about 50 cents RPI over four months versus the 1.6 that we said before. And Phoenix Rangers, which is Android only currently, um, looks at less than 10% RPI versus the space that is aiming for Empires and Puzzles was about uh, was over a dollar at this point. So, yeah, most likely the story for Rovio moving forward, they have to drop Hatch as quickly as possible, um, and they need smart growth of both Sugar Blast and Dream Blast, um, looking like mostly Dream Blast, and that will be the key to a higher margin story for 2020. Uh, JK? Yeah, so I think one thing that would be interesting to do is just look at the relative valuations of the other public companies that we look at. And in particular, you know, we talk a lot about Zynga and Glue on the podcast. So just thinking about how far Rovio has come down in terms of market valuations, 300 million, based upon a lot of the stuff that you just talked about, Adam. And then we look at Zynga, which has a market cap of 6.6 .6 billion and Glue, which has over 1 billion. Now on the face of it, you know, some simple analysis that I, that I initially did was just look at net income, income relative to valuation. And, and I think that that was a mistake. So when, you, when we look at like gap net income, Rovio actually has over 20 million relative to Glue's less, Glue's about 9 million. 
but uh, I think that was a mistake that I made. And so, you know, maybe Eric, you can speak to some of the specific numbers and how we should be thinking about Zynga versus Glue versus Robio and why, you know, looking at gap versus non-gap, you know, what that difference is and why we should be looking more at the non-gap numbers instead. Right. I mean, fundamentally, the, uh, the Wall Street guys all look at non-gap measures for valuation. So whenever you're comparing companies, you should always be looking at non-gap measures, which it can be considered like um, more of an operation metric as opposed to gap, which is more of a financial or an accounting thing. And I know it sounds really boring, but ultimately... Um, there's just a lot of things that are in the gap measurements that are not uh, operating. And so they try to pull those things out and includes, you know, uh, uh, sorry, I, I didn't write this down. So I'm doing this from memory. Deferred but comp. Yeah, stock based comp and then deferred revenue is the big piece and all that other stuff. So if you really want to compare companies, you just got to use non gap measures. And so when you look at these three companies in particular, Last year in 2019, Zynga had 1.56 billion and 317 million in EBIT, earnings before interest and taxes, right? Or close to 20% margins with revenue growth of 61%. And that's the reason there were 6 billion, right? Versus Glue, which had 423 million and 42 million in EBIT or 10% margins, uh, EBIT margins and revenue growth of only 10%. And then finally for Rovio, which did about $312 million and 18.3 million EBIT or 7% margins and the revenue growth was flat. And so this is why these companies have such a big difference in terms of valuation is because Wall Street will, will value you based on your growth, first of all, but also on your ability to generate profits. And both Glue and Robio just have not proven that they can really generate profits and grow um, consistently. And uh, Zynga over the last three or four years has done three years actually has done quite well on both metrics. Um, so that's kind of it in a fundamental basis. So people get this mistake all make make these mistakes all the time, and it's not just in gaming too. It's also tech. Um, is that you got to look at non-gap measurements to really get a true comparison of of companies and to see how they performed. And if you look at like a Yahoo for instance, and you look at revenue estimates and earnings estimates, they're all based upon non-gap measures, not gap measures, um, because that's how the uh, analysts build their models. So that's it. Um, as, as for Rovio itself, um, you know, they're in a really tough spot, right? They just don't have the games that really monetize well enough to, I think, justify spend. And you kind of see that in their margin profile. Um, I, you know, I'm not gonna rant again about this investment in, what is it called again? Hatch? It's so ridiculous. I, it's like it literally is like every trigger I could possibly have in 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 one one service. Right? It's unbelievable. It's like it, it's like yeah. It's almost a they're just trolling me. Anyway, I'm gonna have to apologize to my friends at Hatch. <laughs> over there. So anyway, guys. So so by the way, I I, I looking at their pipeline, their three games in beta that you talked about, and I agree with what uh, um, Adam said. They um they're just they don't look very strong. I think uh, I think that's that's it's a kind of scary a little bit that what their pipeline looks like. But why in the hell do they do betas in the U.S. on Google? Right? Who does that? I mean, I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of betas, and I don't think I've ever remember seeing them doing betas and in the U.S. 
on Google, right? I mean, like, what, what is there anybody have any idea why that, that is? I mean, it's just anybody? <laughs> no? Okay. Anyway, it's a really bizarre thing. I've never seen people do that. You do it in tier one English countries like, you know, Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand or whatever, even the UK maybe, but I would never do a beta in the US. But I guess it is a good indicator. And that's the other thing. It is a really good indicator of how they're going to perform and they don't look good. So well, um, I, I think the answer to that, Eric, is just that the value of featuring has declined a lot. So, I mean, there's, there's an open question about whether soft launches just in general are, are worth it or not. Right. So, yeah, a, a lot of people are starting to forego soft launches altogether. So. How, how can you do that? Well, I mean, you, you operate like Playrix does. You just launch and then you just keep improving the game until it's awesome. Huh. And a no. lot of slots companies will also just hard launch, right? Because they have no chance of featuring. So they- Right, right. but that, that was always been the case though, right? For, right. for slots companies. Interesting. Okay. Uh, one, one question I have is that now with, at this valuation, 300 million, is it crazy to think that they would become an interesting acquisition target for a Zynga, which got what, 369 million off of their CLE spec? It certainly have the cash. They didn't do the, whatever company they were previously targeting, seems like that kind of fell through. So whether it's a Zynga or a Stillfront or a company like that, what, what do you guys think? I don't really see the value in Rovio anymore. I mean, I think their IP is really well known. They probably have some of the biggest IP in mobile still to this day with Angry Birds, but I don't think they've evolved to, uh, you know, from the monetization perspective. I kind of have to look at it a little bit closer. If their puzzle games are good enough, then maybe there's some value there for some people that don't have puzzle like, like Zynga. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's some cost synergies that you could get out of it to make them more profitable because I think right now their profit margins are relatively low and so they would have to go in there and kind of clean house to some degree. Sorry, Mishka. Not that, not that Mishka would get cut, not at all. I'm just saying. Um, uh, yeah, there might be some, <laughs> there might be some value there uh, from that perspective. I mean, this is like, you're, I mean, to some degree, it would be a, a distressed sale, right? So it's possible. You would have to find the right synergies, right? So like, like a company like Tencent wouldn't be interested in this because it's just not an operating unit that they, that they would find valuable, I don't think, anyway. But... Um, if their engine like is like for instance like zynga this does not have a good puzzle engine you know and so if they have a better puzzle engine that they think they can leverage with their own ip maybe and grow that business that would maybe be smart i don't know i'm just thinking out of my ass right now i don't know i haven't thought about it too much all right i think that's it all of our articles are complete any other concluding thoughts any, anyone want to take a few more shots at uh, friends of mine in the industry? Or? <laughs> <laughs> you just got to call them how you see them, you know? Sounds good. All right. All right. I think we're, we're done. Thanks, guys. Bye now. See you. Bye.